0: Turn with me, please, to where we are in our study series of Messiah and Prophecy in Psalms. And we're up to Psalm 110 tonight. Psalm 110. Not a long psalm, but a very important one in terms of both Messiah and prophecy. And it deals with another subject, Christology. Christology. Psalm 110 is the most Christological of the Psalms. Christology is what conservative theologians call the study of the nature and person of Christ, both in eternity and on earth. Christ preexistent, Christ who came and Christ who is coming again, the study of the person of Christ or of the Messiah. That is Christology and Psalm 110 is probably, there are others, but Psalm 110 is probably the most Christological of the Psalms, showing the eternal nature of Christ and his relationship with the Father within the Godhead. Next week, we'll be continuing, Lord willing, with Psalm 118. However, in Hebrew liturgy, in the Hebrew makzor for Passover and for the Feast of Tabernacles, Psalm 118 begins with Psalm 115. So it's 115 to 118. Those three Psalms together are called the Great Praise, the Hallel Rabbah. And they are sung liturgically or ritually in the festal liturgy for Passover and for the Feast of Booths, for Feast of Tabernacles, Hag Sukkot. So we'll be looking at Psalm 118 next week, but bear in mind, in its usage among ancient Israelites, it began in Psalm 115. When Jesus came into the Temple Mount, they sang Psalm 118, but they would have begun with Psalm 115. Now, we obviously, for the sake of brevity, we're not going to do 115 and 116, but we're going to do 118 next week. Blessed is he who comes. In the name of the Lord, we will be looking at that that great and wonderful psalm uh, about the stone that was rejected and so forth. That will be next week, uh, Psalm 118 and the Hillel Rabbah. It will correspond somewhat to our teaching tape on Palm Sunday. There's a very old Morio recorded teaching on Palm Sunday where the festival use is elaborated on in much greater depth, but we'll be looking at it from the the point of view of of psalm and worship next week and how worship and and singing and music is used prophetically in biblical Hebrew expression of, of, of their beliefs in God as manifested or as displayed at the high holy days, at the the feasts. So the feasts have a deep prophetic meaning about the Messiah, but the liturgy and the song liturgy from the Psalms expresses it. It is didactic, it teaches. And that will be next week, Psalm 118. But tonight, a Psalm of David 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. In other words, all power and dominion will be given to Jesus, to the Son. The Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of thine enemies. Jesus is going to take authority in the millennium and rule from Mount Zion. Now, the meaning of scepter is, of course, governing authority in a physical sense. Remember, the scepter would not depart from Judah until Shiloh came, the prophecy of Jacob in Genesis 49. The kingship had to stay in Jerusalem until the Messiah was born. Well, the kingship will return to Jerusalem when the Messiah comes back. The scepter will return to Judah. In his first coming, the scepter departed from Judah. When Herod the Great died, the Roman capital of the nation was ruled from Kisaria Maritina, from Kisaria. When the Messiah comes, the rulership will revert to Jerusalem, to Mount Zion. It departs, but then it returns with the return of Christ. In his first coming, it departs from, from Jerusalem. In his second coming, it returns. Okay. Only the Messiah has a right to rule from Jerusalem. Antichrist of course will attempt to put himself in that position. Only the Messiah has the right to rule from Jerusalem from the throne of David. The antichrist will try to put himself into that position. From the time of the Babylonian captivity onward no other king had a right to rule in Jerusalem per se. And if you look at them John Herodanus was the high priest who made himself a king and then of course the Herodian dynasty the kingship was lost, and it cannot be restored until the Messiah comes and restores it. He did not restore it in his first coming, but he shall in his second. The scepter departed from Judah, but when Jesus comes back, the scepter shall return. I hope I'm making this clear. The peoples will volunteer freely in the day of thy power, and holy array from the womb of the dawn, Thy youth are to thee as the dew. People are going to willingly, willingly cling to and follow Jesus in the day of his power. They will do this of their own accord. The Hebrew meaning is they will do it as a free will offering. People will give themselves to Jesus, to Yeshua, to the Messiah. As a free will offering when he returns, and of course, dressed in the garments of salvation. Now, the notion of the, the dawn, dawn usually has a typological correspondence to resurrection, usually has a typological correspondence to resurrection for reasons we've referred to on other teaching tapes. But then it continues in verse four. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at the right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside, therefore, he will lift up his head. Again, the idea of exaltation. Well, let's begin talking about Melchizedek. Melchizedek, Melchizedek from the Hebrew Malak, king, the king of righteousness could be interpreted the righteous king, the righteous king, but king of righteousness. Now we notice something about Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a king, Melchizedek, who was also a high priest. Under the Torah, as most of you know, the kingship had to be from the house of David from the tribe of Judah. But the high priesthood had to be from Aaron, from the and Moses, but Aaron from the tribe of Levi. Aaron, Levite, David, from the tribe of Judah. Okay. Only the Messiah could be both a king and a priest. In the Hebrew scriptures, we have an account of one king who burned incense in the temple and tried to function as a priest, and God's judgment came upon him. He was smitten with leprosy instantly. In the Hasmonean period, or the intertestamental period, we had the actions of John Hyrcanus, a high priest who tried to make himself a king. So we had a king who tried to be a priest, and the priest who had to be a king bad move only the messiah could be both now again most of you know this when pilate tacked the sign onto the cross when jesus was being crucified king of the jews he was of course our high priest hebrews tells us epistle to hebrews tells us he was our high priest making the perfect blood atonement on the altar for our sin but he was also king of the jews Only the Messiah could be both king and high priest. Now, again, on other teachings, we've related this to the genealogy of Jesus. We see that although Jesus was of the tribe of Judah, he was a first cousin of John the Baptist, who was from the tribe of Levi. His mother, Mary, through his mother, he had a mixture of Levitical blood and Davidic blood. That is emblematic of the fact that he was both king and priest. However, only the Messiah can be both king and priest. His role as king comes from being a descendant of David. His role as priest, although illustrated by his mother's family, his priesthood came from Melchizedek, Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, who was also a priest. Look with me, please, to the book of Genesis, chapter 14, verse 18. After God gives Abraham military victory, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, Melchizedek, the righteous king, king of Salem, the king of Shalom, okay, peace, bought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God, most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God, most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And he gave him a tenth of all. He paid him a tithe. Okay. Melchizedek brings bread and wine conspicuously, bread and wine. Now, obviously, this would later have a Paschal implication for Passover, but in the New Testament, we obviously know it is the language of the Lord's Supper, of what we call communion. He brings him bread and wine. The meaning of these emblems, is, of course, explained to us in the New Testament. So, he's right there from God's original dealing with Israel and the Jews, with Abraham. He's always been there. Melchizedek was there right from the onset. Let's look once again at Psalm 110, verse 4, and just read it carefully. The Lord has sworn, and will not change his mind. That is, he's not going to alter it. Okay. Not going to alter it. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's deal with this word, order. This word, order. The word order in Greek is taxis, or in the case of the taxin, taxin, and it means arranged in an order according to time or succession, arranged in an order according to a time, like a chronology or an era, or succession, okay, like a dynasty, okay. It can also be, and is co-equally understood, as being in the character, fashion, and style, character, fashion, and style. Now, Melchizedek is there of this order and of this kind, okay, and there is a certain character to it. That defines the order we can almost think of the word the way the new testament uses the word taxine as character in the character of but according to a certain order okay well with these things in view let's begin our real bible study that's the background turn with me please to the epistle to the hebrews chapter one I don't want to talk about things you already know, but we always have new people coming on, so I have to touch on things you may already know. God, after he spoke long ago to the Fathers and the Prophets in many portions and in many ways. In the Old Testament, he spoke through the Fathers and the Prophets in many portions. That refers to the Peder the portion of the week. The reading of the Torah and Haftorah, the reading of the law and prophets in the Hebrew liturgy from the temple that was carried on to this day in the synagogue, okay? People didn't have Bibles. There was no codexes. There was no printing presses. They had Megilot, scrolls that were read. And there was an annual lection of reading of the law and the prophets called the portion of the week. Again, Hebrews is obviously written to Jewish believers. But in these last days here, and again, I know most of our people know this, the word is eschaton, last, we get the word eschatology. Notice it was the last days 2000 years ago when this was written. (laughs) What we call eschatology is in a sense a misnomer. We normally think colloquially in popular Christian thought and expression When you hear the word or the theological term eschatology we have the inherent understanding almost that it's talking about the events leading up to the return of christ the events leading up to the return of christ from the word eschaton but that's not what it is because christians don't want to be confused with mormons they tend understandably, tend to shy away from what the word really means in the English language. Latter, in these latter times. But because we don't want to be called latter-day saints, even though that's what we are, we don't want to be called that because that's what the Mormons call themselves. The term means last. It's comparing the old covenant of Israel with the new covenant of the Messiah, the law of Moses with the law of grace. That's what it's doing, old and new covenant, which is a consistent theme throughout the epistle of Hebrews. We have a better covenant, Hebrews tells us, under the Messiah. You have the law, and then you've got grace. Okay, well, the former was the law, fulfilled by Christ and fulfilled in Christ. Now we're under a different law. The law of Jesus or under grace. And so the latter days are the latter days have always been here. Remember, the resurrection and rapture are proliptic. Jesus is called the first fruit of the resurrection. He rose from the dead on the Hebrew feast of first fruits. shon of Hagmat I know most of our regular people know all this. It's just for visitors. He's the first fruit. Hebrews 6, I'm sorry, Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, tells us what happened to Jesus will happen to us, raising up on the third day, etc. He's the first fruit of it. Okay. Well, in other words, because his death is our death, Our old nature died with him on the cross. His resurrection is our resurrection. It's just that he's the first in the order. He's the first in the order of it. We are not waiting for the resurrection. The resurrection has already begun with the resurrection of Jesus. We are waiting for our role in it. Similarly, we are not waiting for the rapture. The rapture has already commenced with the ascension of Jesus. We are waiting for our role in it. But we're already in the latter days. The rapture and resurrection have already begun. Jesus inaugurated the latter days with his resurrection and his ascension. The rapture and resurrection have begun. We are in the latter days. Hence, the way we use the term eschatos, eschaton, is is a misnomer. It doesn't bother me that people use it. And I understand we don't want to be confused with the Mormons, terrible cult. I, I, I get all that obviously, but we have to understand what the scripture means by those terms. What we normally think of as eschatology and the events leading up to the return of Christ and the rapture and things of this nature. The New Testament calls that something different. The Olivet Discourse calls it the close of the age, the close of the age. Instead of calling it last, we should be calling it close. (laughs) Or perhaps a better word would be teleology, from the Greek word, and I'm making this up, telos, um, the aim, the target, the final conclusion. But again, I'm not arguing with anybody's use of the term eschatology. I'm simply saying we have to know that Scripture means something different by it than the way the term is normally used. Again, our own regular people know that. If you're new to us, you'll get it eventually. (laughs) Okay. And he is the radiance of his glory. Okay. He's appointed of all things through whom he made the world. The world was made through Christ. This is John 1. And he's the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. If you want to know what the Father is like, look at Jesus. Jesus is the mirror image of the Father, the character, the nature of the Father jesus is the mirror image of it his resurrection is the radiance the way john saw jesus in john in revelation chapter one john knew jesus as a man but when he saw him as god it was a completely completely different experience let's look he upholds all things by the word of his power when he has made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, of the father, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he say, thou art my son, today I have begotten me, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels wins and his ministry a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, thy throne, O God is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter, there's the word again, the rule, is the scepter of his kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, antinomianism. Therefore, God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy companion. We'll continue in verse 10 in a moment. But look it, he loves righteousness, but he hates lawlessness. Remember, the Antichrist will be the man of lawlessness. The counterfeit Christ, the counterfeit Messiah, will be the man of lawlessness. Now, he hates lawlessness. He hates it. Because if you have lawlessness, you cannot have righteousness. Uh, Just think of it. Thou shalt not commit adultery, Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not murder. (laughs) If people do those things, that's lawless. Not righteous. He loves righteousness. You don't take another's life unless it's self-defense or something. You know, you you don't sleep with somebody's wife. You sleep with your own. You know, you don't steal something. You don't even covet something. Well, that's righteousness. Be careful of the lawless. The breakdown of law we see in society, particularly in the big cities of the United States now, or when you see a dictator like Putin invading Ukraine in violation of all standards of law, international law, just unprovoked military aggression, you see these things happening. This lawlessness that's overtaking the world on every level, culturally, sociologically, politically, this lawlessness is the spirit of antichrist being driven by the spirit of antichrist and when the chaos gets to the point people are going to look for somebody to save them they're not going to look to jesus they're going to look to the one who caused it they'll look to a false messiah satan will know how to convince people that he can bring about a stable world because he's responsible for the instability (laughs) All he has to do is turn down the heat temporarily to bamboozle people, and then he turns it up higher. Well, that's what's going to happen with Antichrist. Now, understand these world events you see now, they're different in many respects from things that have happened at other times in history. They have happened at other times in history, but this time Israel is a nation again. This time it's different. Let us look. The hebrews it frightened me during the well even now with the new apostolic reformation people but it goes back before that when you told the laughing drunk in counterfeit revivals this stuff is not scriptural um uh, self-control oh you're under the law we're under grace we're free in this well, they're lawless they're lawless. Very briefly, and again, I know our regular people know this. I only mention it for the sake of the new ones, because I know we're getting new people. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, look at it very briefly. Verse 21, To those who are without law, a as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. When you cross an international border, say when you take a a, a ferry from uh, Ireland to to Wales, you leave the jurisdiction of Great Britain and you enter the jurisdiction of the Republic of Ireland. You can't say you can drive as fast as you want and go through red lights because you're in a different country. (laughs) There's, There's a body of law in each. Well, there's a body of law under the Old Covenant and a body of law under the New Covenant. We've come out from under the law of Moses, but we are under the law of Christ. There are do's and don'ts in the New Testament, the same as there are in the Old. And when people teach something different, Christ hates it. Christ hates it. Oh, we're free in the Spirit and we can do this. And we see things like this. People getting divorced and remarried with no scriptural grounds and they believe it's okay. There's there's pastors and preachers doing it. This is lawlessness. Oh, I just feel free. Christ set me free from this. No, he didn't. Read what he said about the permanency of marriage. (laughs) The biblical scope of divorce and remarriage is extremely narrow, extremely narrow. But let's look. Okay, so we're back in Hebrews. And he hates lawlessness, but he loves righteousness. Well, what else is this telling us? Thy throne, O God, is forever, and he's above the angels. To which of the angels did he ever say? In the early church, post nicene period, roughly, there was a heresy that came out of Alexandria, Egypt as its epicenter, and it was called Arianism, Arianism, and it said that Jesus was an angel, an angelic being who came in human form. There are cults and aberrational expressions of Christianity that say he is Michael the Archangel. Many Seventh-day Adventists believe this. Well, this ancient heresy that came out of Alexandria called Arianism made a comeback. Only when it came back, it came back out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It began with the Dawn's Bible Society, which quickly mutated into what we know as Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses. They take on the same Christology as the ancient Arians. Jesus is an angelic being, but not God. One of the most important passages in witnessing to a Jehovah's Witness and in refuting their belief is Psalm 110 and its reference to Hebrews chapter 1. To which of the angels did he say, let the angels worship him now they try to change this in their ridiculous bible called the new world translation did obeisance to him no no he's worshiped the angels worship jesus he's not a created being and he's not an angelic being the only sense that jesus can be called an angel is the following angel angelo in greek Ma'alach in Hebrew is the word for divine messenger, a divine messenger, messenger. Okay, the angel of the Lord, as you know, with the definite article, the angel of the Lord in the Hebrew Scriptures, when you, when it has ha'malachadolai, that is a Christophany. It's an Old Testament manifestation of Jesus, and Jesus is indeed the messenger of God. In that sense, we can say he's an angel, but he is not an angel in substance or nature, like a cherub or a seraph. He's not like the seraphim or cherubim. He does not have that nature. He has the same nature as the father. We have to be very careful here. There are people saying ridiculous things today as they said them in the early church this is one of the most important passages in refuting the beliefs of the jehovah's witnesses and certain other people with aberrational christology that derives from the ancient heresy of arianism of arianism he's an angel well what else does it tell us that he is divine that he is indeed god almighty in verse eight, okay. Now, let's go further with this. Thou hast loved righteousness, hated lawlessness. Then in verse 10, thou, Lord, in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. Notice Jesus is called God. And he is called creator. Now, if you don't know, if you're a new believer and you don't know, this is explained to us in Proverbs chapter 8. In Proverbs chapter 8, we read about how the Father created the world through the Son. Jesus is the Logos, the Word of God, and the Logos, among other things, means the creative word of god so god spoke the universe into existence let there be light let there be firmament that word christ is that word incarnate god is his word conceptually okay and we read this about him verse 23 from everlasting i was established he was always around From the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there was no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, that is his father, nor the first dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed the circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set for the sea its boundary so that the waters should not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundation of the earth, then I was next to him as a master workman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. The one we call Jesus was in eternity with the Father and all things were made through him. John chapter one, the world was made through him. Nothing came into being that did not come into being through Jesus. Rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. Therefore, O sons, listen to me, for blessed are they who keep my ways, heed instruction and be wise. Do not neglect it. Now, this talks about Jesus. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorposts. Now, look at verse 35. For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me injures himself. All those who hate me love death. People who hate Christ love death. Not just biological death, the second death. If you love life, you're going to love Christ. If you love Christ, you're going to love life. Not life in this world, but life. Those who love life in this world, or trust in life in this world, trust death. They hate Christ, because he says, this world is something to turn your back on. Be in it, but not of it. But there he is in the creation. This is what we see in Psalm 10, 110, and it is what we see in Hebrews. He's the creative agent of God. You've got to find him. It goes on. The ones who find him, they will perish, but thou remnant, and they will become old as a garment and a mantle that will throw them up as a garment. They will also be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he said, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? There's an angelic presence around us. Paul says we can entertain angels unaware. But they are God's messengers, God's spiritual servants. They can manifest in human form. But the sun is above that. He's the Son. Now look again. Thy throne, O God, is forever. And God says this of the Son. That term forever, Aeon, it means an age, the age, eternity. There's no beginning and no end to it. Okay. Well, God, He's eternal. And he's a son. Here, we have to deal with Christological errors again. We've looked at the Aryan era. Now there is another error, And it has three forms. The error, broadly speaking, is called monarchism. Monarchism. I get the word monarch. And it has three forms. The first form is called modelism, modelism, M O D A L I S M, modelism. Model. That denies one God and three persons. Modelism is usually expressed in a heresy called Sabellianism. Don't get confused. Today, they're the Jesus only people. The Father's Jesus, Jesus is Jesus, the Holy Spirit's Jesus. You have to be baptized in the name of Jesus only. When you see the Jesus only people pushing that idea of baptism in the name of Jesus only. Remember, the real issue with them is not baptism. The real issue is they don't believe in one God and three persons. The real issue is not baptism. Now we have tapes on baptism explaining this. I'm only dealing with it now insofar so far as it's in relation to Psalm 110. So, monarchianism, the first kind is modelism, those who deny one God and three persons. The second is called adoptionism. Adoptionism. Adoptionism says that Jesus became the Son of God. Usually, they say it happened at his baptism. Okay or at his resurrection, he became the Son of God. And they get this from the idea of him being regenerated, that he became the Son of God. He was not eternally divine, he became divine. In other words, God created a god. Look with me, please, to Psalm 2. We looked at this already when we began our series. Psalm 2, verse 7. Thou art my son, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said, thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. They take that particular verse look at it in light of psalm 110 and hebrews chapter 1 and they determine that jesus is a created being okay verse 12 of psalm 2 do homage to the son lest he become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may be kindled How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Well, if he became the son in eternity, (laughs) he could not have become the son when he was baptized on earth or when he rose from the dead in human form. This is one of the problems adoptionists have. Yet, it does say monogenes, begotten. We normally think of the term monogenes, begotten. Charles Spurgeon didn't like the term eternal generation, that Jesus was continually begotten from eternity. He didn't like the term. He said it's just man's best way to explain something, but he didn't like the term. But he said the doctrine is true. The doctrine is true. Of eternal generation. So you have those who are adoptionists, modelists, and adoptionists. Adoptionists say that Jesus became the Son of God on earth when he was in human form. Then you have a sanitized version of monarchism, it is called incarnational sonship those people are not heretics in the sense of modelists and in the sense of adoptionists but they're on thin ground they say that jesus pre-existed as god but he only became the son of god when he was born That's what they say. He became the Son of God when he was born. Now, how do we understand the term monogenes? He was the only begotten of the Father because he was conceived of the Holy Spirit in human form. In that sense, he's monogenes. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit in human form, the only person. There's no other parthenogenesis, only him. Okay, in that sense, we can understand how he's the monogenes, the only begotten of the father. The question is, the sonship issue. Look with me, please, to Psalm 45, verse 6. Again, this is quoted in Hebrews 1. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of thy kingdom. This is quoted in Hebrews 1, the same as Psalm 110 is. Well, he's God eternally. But they say he was not the Son eternally, only God. Well, it's hard to jive that with Hebrews where it says, of the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever. Verse 8 of Hebrews 1. Of the Son, he says. When we interpret Psalm 45, verse 6, in light of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, of the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever. Thy throne, O God, is forever. That would indicate his sonship Was eternal. Look with me, please, to the Gospel of St. John, chapter 5, verse 18. I hope this is not too complicated for new believers, but it is important stuff. The way it was understood in his time, for this cause, therefore, the Judeans, the Jews, that is the religious establishment, were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath. In fact, he was fulfilling it, but they said he was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. It was his sonship that made him of equal nature with God. His sonship was eternal. Let's go further with this. The Hebrew term I've begotten is chulti, chulti. It's the same root as the Hebrew word for birthday, yam chuledet, yam huledet. Birthday in Hebrew, yam happy birthday. Chulti, okay. Well, he was brought forth from the Father eternally, but he was brought forth literally in the Incarnation and in his biological birth through Mary. I do not say that monogenes does not apply to him in eternity. But I do say, even if it didn't, he would still be the monogenes because he's the only one conceived of the Holy Spirit. Even Adam was made from the earth. It was constructed. Now, let's go a bit further with this. Look with me to Proverbs chapter 30. Verse 4. Who was ascended into heaven and descended who has gathered the wind in his fists who's wrapped the waters in his garment who has established all the ends of the earth what is his name and what is his son's name notice he's the son in eternity you would have to say that this is a prophecy about his birth, that he didn't do these things in eternity. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who's wrapped the waters of his garment? Who's established the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Jesus was co-equally God of one nature, substance with the Father in eternity the people who believe in incarnational sonship are in error because they do not deny the eternal deity of christ i would not say they are heretics they are not like the other monarchianists they're not like the modelists they're not like the Sabalians, they are not like you know uh the adoptionists but they have certain things in common with them that are not right now let's continue we go back to Melchizedek what more can we say about this one who came to Abraham with the bread and the wine look with me please to Hebrews chapter 5 verse 6 Just as he says in another passage, you know, thou art my son today, I begotten thee, monogenes. Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Messiah would be in the character, in the nature, in the order of Melchizedek. Same chapter, verse. 10 being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek the king of righteousness now what hebrews is wanting to do is to draw a distinction between two god-given priesthoods it wants to draw a distinction between the Aaronic priesthood, or the Levitical priesthood, as it may be called, and the eternal priesthood of Melchizedek. God is showing two priesthoods. The Aaronic priesthood is a figure, a symbol of the eternal one. It's a symbol or a figure of the eternal one. The idea of order has succession, and the high priests had to be, by succession, a, a dynasty, a priestly dynasty called Kohanim, descendant from Aaron. Okay, It's a symbol of the eternal one. Okay. Like any of the Old Testament prophets who foreshadow Christ, Jeremiah is called the lamb led to slaughter, or in certain contexts... King David cries out to God and, and he's prefiguring Christ in the crucifixion or Isaac when he was going he's the son who was going to be sacrificed all of these old testament figures are types of Christ they teach something about him but they're not what he was they're shadows to teach about him well so the ironic priesthood is a shadow of the eternal one of melchizedek Remember, Hebrews is a commentary on the book of Leviticus. It explains what the Old Testament sacrificial system meant. What it was and how it pointed to Christ. The purpose of Hebrews, in major part, the main purpose of Hebrews is to explain the Old Testament, the worship and religion, as it were, of the Old Testament, Levitical worship, the sacrificial portions of the law. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20, where Jesus had entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek an eternal priesthood it keeps saying this <coughs> <coughs> Hebrews 5.6 5, 5, 6 20 according to the order according to the order according to the order Hebrews chapter 7 for this Melchizedek king of Salem priest of the most high God who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. To whom also Abraham apportioned the tenth part of the spoils, Abraham gave him a tithe, was first of all by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, that is king of peace. Now notice this, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life but made like the son of god he abides a priest perpetually he was pre-existent he had no beginning and he has no end the only one with no beginning and no end is god and he abides perpetually a permanent high priest now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his choicest spoils. For those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descendants from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced with them Collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Everybody else paid a tithe to these ones who were descendants of Abraham, to Abraham. Abraham pays it to Melchizedek, to the eternal king of righteousness. Doesn't have the genealogy. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so, to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received the tithe, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father Melchizedek. I'm sorry, in the lines of his father, that is Abraham, when Melchizedek met him. Okay. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, that's the law, the sacrifices in the temple. For on the basis of it, people received the Torah. What further need was there for another priest to arise? Therefore, another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek. And not be designated according to the order of Aaron. It's comparing two priesthoods. The Aaronic one, the Aaron one is a shadow of the eternal one. The eternal one is embodied in Melchizedek. For when the priesthood of change, it's necessary that the takes change also takes place a change of law. We went from the old covenant to the new. As long as there was an Aaronic priest, there was the Torah. When there was a non-Aaronic priest, from the order of Melchizedek, there was grace, the new covenant. For the one concerning, in verse 13, these things are spoken, belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. In other words, he wasn't a Levite. For it is evident that our Lord was descendant from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing about priests. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, not Levi. Although he had Leviticus, his priesthood had to come from a different order who has become such not on the basis of law, of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, thou art a priest forever, according to the law of Melchizedek. We only have one conclusion from Psalm 110 when we look at it, in light of hebrews chapter one and it tells us the lord has sworn and will not change in verse four he won't change his mind thou art a priest forever according to the order of melchizedek somebody who was pre-existent somebody to whom abraham paid the tithe someone who bought the bread and wine Someone whose priesthood is eternal. Someone like no other priest, pre existent, no father or mother in a human sense. He came physically to earth. Abraham paid a tithe to him, he bought the bread and wine, and his priesthood is eternal. Melchizedek, obviously is a Christophany, an Old Testament fleshment of Christ. We can talk about the incarnation, and it is important that we do give it the emphasis we give it. Fulfilling Isaiah seven fourteen, a virgin shall conceive. At that point, the monogenes of eternity became a monogenes on earth. Jesus was the only one born directly from the Father, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's true. But it does not set a precedent. It's only the first time God came through human birth. God came physically when Adam heard him walking in the garden, that was Jesus. The angel of the Lord was Jesus in the book of Numbers. The angel of the Lord that appeared to Manoah was Jesus. The angel of the Lord that wrestled with Jacob at Jabbok at Peniel was Jesus. And Melchizedek, the eternal high priest, who existed from eternity and shall always exist, who gives the bread and wine is Jesus. This is Psalm 110. Psalm 110 and Hebrews chapter 1 go together. Psalm 110 has a cousin in Psalm 45, but Psalm 110 has a son, as it were, in Hebrews chapter 1. It is the most Christological of the Psalms. It speaks of what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. His enemies will be his footstool. He's going to reign from Jerusalem. The scepter will be in Zion. And he will be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He will judge the nations and lift up his head. So we have Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the cryptic version of Hebrews. It's in the Old Testament cryptically, but when we get to the New Testament, the Hebrews, what is cryptic is deciphered for us. Think of Psalm 110 as the encryption of Hebrews, the Epistle to the Hebrews. But the Epistle to the Hebrews is the deciphering of Psalm 110. Now, again, Hebrews is a commentary, inspired commentary on Leviticus. It explains the book of Leviticus. But the central aspect of a high priest in Leviticus, the Aaronic high priest, is only a shadow of the eternal one. Much like the Davidic kings were shadows of the eternal king, so the Aaronic priests are shadows of the eternal priest. Who is the ultimate king, of whom the Davidic kings are a shadow, Jesus the Messiah. And who is the high priest that we have, according to the order of Melchizedek? Hebrews goes on to tell us, Jesus is our high priest. This is open to us in the epistle to Hebrews. Hebrews. but it was encrypted in the Hebrew Scriptures. Now that's important because it shows that our beliefs are not an invention of the early church. It shows it's not as the rabbis claim Christians changed Judaism and made it a different religion. And No, no, no. no. It didn't begin a new religion. It simply showed the messianic fulfillment of what already existed that's all it's always been there in the old testament just like we have an eternal king we have an eternal priest in the old testament jesus was simply referred to as the son in the new testament we know his name yeshua jesus As king, as priest, he was known as Melchizedek. In the New Testament, he's known as Jesus. You don't see any other priest of the order of Melchizedek, except Melchizedek himself. That is the Messiah. I know this was a bit complicated tonight because of the Christology, but it's important stuff particularly in evangelism to Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and to Orthodox Jews. I hope it made sense. Uh, Thank you so much for listening, and God bless.